Well, please turn your Bibles to Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. We're making our way through the, the Pentateuch. We're in Leviticus, and we should be uh, finishing that up next week. So I encourage you to read the last couple chapters of Leviticus uh, this week, and we'll look at some of that uh, next week. And as you turn to Levit- Leviticus 25, again, just want to encourage you to uh, be thinking through uh, your involvement in our, our children's ministry. There's opportunities to sign up for that in the hallway. And then also, um, you know, as you receive the, the card as you come in, that care card, we'd love for you to fill that out. Let us know how we can pray for you. And then also, if, if you would like us to pray for you during part of the, the elder prayer uh, before the sermon here, if you just, just mark that on your cards so that we can, can uh, know that, that you're okay with that. And we don't get to everything we could pray for uh, every week. Or every some services we pray for one thing, and then I hear some pray for some in the first service, and I see them in the second. I'm like, oh, I wish we could have switched that around. But uh, we're, we're so um, we're praying for those things, and encourage you to to uh, to be a part of that if if that's something you desire. But we want to protect uh, your privacy as well if that's not something you want to. Um, some things you want the whole church to be praying for on a Sunday morning. I get that too. Well, Leviticus 25. We're looking at something called the, the, the year of Jubilee. And if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. <clears throat> I'm going to begin in verse 8. And here in chapter 25, we've just seen something called the Sabbath year, which takes place one year out of every seven. And then we come to verse 8 and we read this. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, well, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you shall be, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. In all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. 
If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem him, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer. Throughout his generations it shall not be released in the Jubilee." But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Verse 32, as for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses and the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in the city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses and the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever." Then he describes the year of Jubilee in relationship to, to people and the release there. Then it says in verse 55, last verse of the chapter, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Father, we do pray that you would work on our hearts as we, we talk about this, this issue of the things you have entrusted to us as your stewards. Help us to do all these things through our faith in your son, Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. A few years ago, I noticed kind of an interesting pattern about my, my hangout times with my son, Noah. Noah and I would, would go out during our hangout times, daddy hangout times, and we'd go out for ice cream or we'd go out for um, candy or something like that. And we would, we would start talking and I'd ask him a question, he asked me a question, and I'd ask him another question. And, and then he would start telling me about some superhero TV show he had seen or a movie that he had seen. And my son has an incredible memory. And he would begin telling me about these, these, this superhero or his backstory and these other villains that he fought and what happened to him in a parallel universe. And, and for about the first 10 minutes, I'd be tracking with him, you know. And, and then it would go on. And it would go on. And, I mean, he has a good memory. And he would just, every detail he would begin to share. And um, maybe some of you would be like, boy, I'd love to talk to your son because I would love to have those conversations. I lasted about 20 minutes, and then I'd say, son, let's, let's talk about, let's take a breath. Let's, let's talk about something else. And you go, okay. Oh, one more thing. And then, you know, another. So a couple times this, I kind of noticed the pattern. I said, uh, we went out again, and I said, hey, I love hearing what you're excited about. I, I think it is awesome that you have this memory, that you enjoy TV shows or whatever it is, and uh, but but I want to train you in how to have a conversation, and we are not having a conversation right now. You're filibustering, and um, <laughs> let's let's just practice this here. And he goes, I said, I want 
in a conversation, you need to find something that the other person is interested in and then ask them a question about it. He goes, yeah, yeah, okay, Dad. So, Dad, uh, what do you think about those Republicans and Democrats <laughs> and economics? <laughs> and that was his question. And then I talked for 20 minutes. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, you, pick, you picked a good one. And I, I do like talking about those things sometimes, maybe less now than I, I used to. Even now, whenever he and I go out, we'll, we'll kind of go back and forth. And he'll, then he'll say, hey, Dad, so tell me, Donald Trump, what do you think? Just lay it on me. You know, just kind of he knows that he knows how to get me going. Uh, what, what the interesting thing here is that I think that Noah did a great job picking something he knew that I would, would talk about. And I think a lot of Christians would, would talk about subjects like the economy as well. Many Christians are excited about that topic, that you talk about politics and how it relates to the economy. And Christians, rightly so, are interested in those things and, and rightly so have opinions, right? The, the danger for us as Christians is sometimes we take our opinions and then we, we take the Bible and we say, not only are these my opinions about tax policy or, or something like that, but, but on this specific issue, uh, I'm confident that I know what the, the biblical principle is here as well. And I, I think we have to be careful as we do that. That we need to be cautious. It's appropriate to look to God's word for principles and, and think about how those principles impact the economy, but I think we need to be cautious. There's, there's a danger. It's like being on a team, and the team is kind of talking with each other, and, and the team says, you know what, uh, here's the best way to score a basket, and, and, here's, you know, here, and they kind of start arguing about, well, should we play offense or defense, and, and how should we pass the ball? And then finally someone on the team says, hey, wait, guys, um, we're not a basketball team, we're a swim team. Uh, in other words, the, the rules of the game, like what you're saying may be true. That may be the best way to, to pass a basketball, but it, it kind of, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter because our goal is to get from one end of the swimming pool to the other in a fast amount of time. Sometimes Christians, as they talk about the economy and, and material possessions and how best to allocate them and, and how best to distribute them and how to gain more of them, Maybe the things that we're saying are, are true. Maybe there's some, some good principles there, some wisdom principles, but, but sometimes we have, we have lost the main point of what we're supposed to be thinking about. We're kind of seeding the game, if, it, if, if you will. We're playing a game that we're not supposed to be playing. Now, this text is a very interesting text. It introduces something called the year of Jubilee. And this, this year of jubilee or this year of release is something that is built into the, the economic system of the Israelites and is designed by God for them to think rightly about material possessions and it's designed to convey some theological truths about who God is. And the problem that you and I face maybe is, is twofold. One problem we have is that sometimes, sometimes as we as Christians talk about politics or economics, we're, we've conceded too much as we enter into these discussions. We're talking like we believe the accumulation of stuff should be the ultimate goal of a society or an individual. And we find ourselves arguing about the best way to play offense or defense or dribble the ball or set up a scoring shot while we are drowning in the deep end of the pool of materialism. 
That's one problem. And the other problem is when I am talking about economics or when I'm talking about how best to save money or do these types of things, sometimes I'm ignoring the most important economic issue I need to deal with, and that is how my own heart views material things. That's the ultimate economic question I need to be wrestling with. Now, again, it's not wrong to think about these things, and and many Christians have some great thoughts about many of these issues, but the issue that I need to be wrestling with is my heart attitude when it comes to the things that God has entrusted to me. In fact, here's the main point that I, I want us to consider this morning. Here's kind of our, our main point. It's, it's this, as we look at Leviticus 25. How I view and use my stuff reveals either enslavement to the world or freedom in Christ. How I view and use my stuff reveals either enslavement to the world or freedom in Christ. And we're going to look at two questions this morning to kind of help us explore what this means. And here's the first question. Let me say it one more time. Let me go back just there for a second, Jake. I saw people still writing. Sorry, I don't want to go too fast. How I view and use my stuff reveals either enslavement to the world or freedom in Christ. And now here are the two questions. Question number one is this. What is the year of Jubilee? What's happening here in Leviticus 25? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at three passages, Leviticus 25, and then Isaiah 61, and then Luke 4. Let's, let's talk about Leviticus 25 first. And as we talk about Leviticus 25, you see there are kind of three sections of this chapter. The first chapter, the first part of the chapter talks about this thing called the Sabbath, and this is a Sabbath for the land. Last week when we were in Leviticus 23 primarily, we were talking about the feasts, and the feasts started with this day of Sabbath. It was the seventh day. It was a, a Sabbath for people. Now God is describing this Sabbath for the land. It's not the seventh day. It's the seventh year. So this would take place one year out of seven, the seventh year, and listen to how it's described. God tells Moses, in the seventh year, there'll be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. You don't sow during that year. You don't reap the, what's growing of your harvest. You don't gather the grapes. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, for your male and female slaves, your hired worker, and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for all the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So in other words, this is to be a Sabbath, just like the day of Sabbath for people. This is a year of Sabbath for the land. And this year of Sabbath theologically conveyed the same thing that the day of Sabbath did. God is in control. We rest in him. We're stewards of that which a sovereign God has entrusted to us. The person that was Israelite living in the Sabbath year understood, okay, this, this land belongs to God. I'm a steward of it. I work it, but I don't exploit it. I treat it well. I don't worship the land, but neither do I abuse it and be a poor steward of the resources that he's given me. Then we see in this, this next section in verses 8 through 34, we see the year of Jubilee in the land. And what we see about this year of Jubilee is it's a, a year of, of release. Every 50 years, so there's 
seven seven-year period, so 49 years, and every seventh year there's a year of Sabbath, and so year 49, there'd be a year of Sabbath, and then there's this 50th year, a year of jubilee, or a year of release. That word jubilee, we think of as like a year of dancing a whole bunch and jumping up and down. No, that's kind of our understanding of the word of jubilee. Here in the, the Hebrew, the word is yobel, or jobel, from which we get the year of jubilee, so jubilee is just kind of a English transliteration of that Hebrew word. And that, that word originally meant ram's horn. It was describing a, a horn that was blown to declare the year of Jubilee on the Day of Atonement. And this, this word we see here as it's used in chapter 25 means release or, or liberty. Leviticus 25.10 is a verse that's inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. And verse 10, as verses kind of 8 through 12, give, give a little bit of an overview. Verse 10 says, says this, On this 50th year you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a, a jubilee or, or liberty for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. And in the book of Numbers, we're going to see that all the land is going to be allocated. This land that God has given them is allocated among the 12 tribes. And then each family receives land within that land that's given to their tribe. And owning that land and being on that land was a sign of your participation in the covenant that God had made with your father Abraham. So as you live in the land, you are believing that God's promises to Abraham are going to come true. That, that blessing is going to come true is your participation as God's covenant people. And so... Every 50 years, you, you can buy and you can sell land throughout that 50-year period, but, or 49 years, but in that 50th year, what happens? Everything goes back to who it belonged to originally. It's pretty radical, right? Now, what would take place? Well, verses 13 through 17 kind of give us an overview of, of what would take place. Verse uh, 14 says, if you make a sell to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you don't wrong one another. Then verse 15, you shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. So let's say that there's just been a year of jubilee. We've, we've ju- everything's just gone back to, to where it was originally allocated. And I come to you and I say, hey, I would like to, like to buy this field. I want to kind of uh, plant some crops here. And you say, you know what? That sounds great. Um, go ahead and you know, I, I didn't have, I'd sold off a lot of my land over the last four, 50 years or my family had, and so I don't have the means to, to do all this. And so, yeah, let me, let me sell that to you, and that way I'll be able to focus on this land better. And, and what do I do? If, if a year of Jubilee has just taken place, I pay a big amount of money because there's a lot of years that I'm going to be able to use that land. It's, it's worth a lot. But now let's say it's, it's two or three years until the next year of Jubilee. I know that if I buy this land, I'm not going to be able to, to use it for very long, and so the, the price is, is lower. Make, makes sense, right? The, the youth tonight are going to a trampoline park, so they can, oh boy, I hope that doesn't happen. I was going to say sprain ankles and things like that. hope that doesn't happen, right? But um, the, the longer they jump, the more they pay. You, pay. you jump for an hour, you pay one rate. You jump for three hours, you pay another and get sick. But that's, that's kind of how the economics works. It, it makes sense. And he says here, 
that, you know, don't worry, trust in me, verses 18 through 22, talk about trust in the Lord. And then he, he draws a theological principle of, of what this is all based on in verse 23. So look at verse 23 with me, if you would. He says, look, the land can't be sold forever in perpetuity for the land's mine. You're strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. And then he describes how a redemption might take place. He says, okay, if, if you sell the land, a relative, a kinsman redeemer can buy the land back for you. Or you can earn some money yourself and buy the land back. And again, how much you pay would be based on how many years until the next year of Jubilee or how many years it was until the last year of Jubilee. So a kinsman, a relative can buy it. You can buy it back. Or the third way is the year of Jubilee. Year of Jubilee, everything goes back the way it was. And then the process of redemption is described there and, and some special circumstances about you know, houses and cities and how those aren't going to go back in the same way that the land was. And What's the point? The point is that God, through this system, is proclaiming, look, I'm, I'm the God who restores. I'm the God who restores the, the land to its people. I'm the God who proclaims liberty proclaims release, who says that everyone is a part of this covenant plan. That you have a, I'm the God who proclaims in my release, in my liberty, that you have an obligation to care for one another, to meet one another's needs. And then we see in verses 35 through 55, the year of Jubilee and the poor, what it means for them. And in verses 35 through 38, it talks about how they are to treat one another well, regardless the idea of love of neighbor, how you treat other covenant people. It's just like whenever you sell your land, whenever you sell yourself, if there's extreme poverty, there's a process for, for being redeemed. You can have a, a relative redeem you and buy you back. You can earn the money and buy back your own freedom. Or you wait until the year of Jubilee and then there's release, there's liberty again. In other words, the, the point is this. God's people don't stay enslaved. God's people are free and God brings that freedom. He's the deliverer. People like the land, God says, belong to me. As you read through this, you see that God is a God of compassion. He's a God of, of justice. He's a God that protects the poor and the disenfranchised. It's an incredible thing to think about. Once a year, I'm sorry, once in your lifetime, on average, there's going to be a, a major upheaval as God restores the land to people and proclaims freedom for all. That's what we see in Leviticus 25. God using these material possessions that he gives the Israelites to proclaim the theological truth that he is a God who brings liberty and freedom. Okay, So God owns it all, God's covenant people use their material possessions in such a way that it proclaims that God is a God who brings liberty and freedom. They have liberty and freedom in him and him alone. Now, here's the second passage I want you to think about. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. What happens in Isaiah 61? And there are other passages that, that kind of give this idea of liberty and freedom, but Isaiah 61 I think is one of the, the clearest examples of this. 
The Spirit of the Lord, this is verse 1 of Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favor. I think he's carrying with him the imagery of Leviticus 25. God is a God who proclaims freedom, and now here in Isaiah 61, in this year of the Lord's favor, he's bringing in this this idea of Leviticus 25, the same word there of, of liberty and release, freedom. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and who is it to? To, to, He's going to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. These people who are oppressed, you said, was this physical or spiritual deliverance? And I think the answer is both. These people who are disenfranchised, who are poor, God proclaims liberty to. He's a God who proclaims liberty, and his people experience freedom. And how do they respond? With worship. Those who are disenfranchised, impoverished, downtrodden, receive freedom and proclaim worship of God. Now, who is the one who brings this freedom? Trying to track this so that we understand how to apply this as Christians and get back to that main idea. How does this, how does this impact us as, as Christians? How, does, how, do, how do people experience this freedom? Who is this one, this anointed one in Isaiah 61? Well, we know it's Jesus, right? And here's the third passage I want you to think about. It's Luke 4. And what happens in Luke 4? In Luke 4, Jesus goes to Nazareth and he, and he, he stands up in, in the synagogue and the scroll is brought to him And he begins to read this passage in Isaiah. The the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's appointed me, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says that Jesus hands the scroll back to the attendant. He sits down. Everybody in the synagogue is looking at him saying, what is he going to say? And Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I, Jesus is saying, am the one who brings this freedom, who brings this release. I am the one who proclaims, who not just proclaims liberty, I am the one in whom liberty and release are found. And then all throughout the rest of the book of Luke, and you may remember this, we see examples of Jesus setting people free, both spiritually and physically. So, what is this year of Jubilee? This year of Jubilee is proclaiming to God's people that you have freedom. And then God's people use the the, the material possessions that he has to illustrate the freedom and to proclaim that freedom that they have. Jesus is the one in whom that freedom is found ultimately. So that's how I arrive at, at the main thing that I want us to think about this morning. How I view and use my, my, my material things is going to proclaim one of two things. As I use the stuff that God has given me, it's either one, showing, hey, I am still a slave to this world. Or secondly, it's proclaiming, hey, I am free in Christ. 
The sad thing is many of us are proclaiming with our lives that we are enslaved to the things of the world, the stuff of the world, the stuff that we have. We're proclaiming we're enslaved and we don't even know it. There's that famous story, I'm sure you've heard it before, I've probably told it before, about the the man who goes down to somewhere in South America to a coastal village and sees a fisherman coming in from catching fish and he he admires the catch of the fish of the fisherman and the fisherman says, why, thank you. And the, the guy asks him, the businessman asks him, well, how long did it take you to do that? And he says, oh, I caught these fish in a couple hours. And the businessman says, well, just a couple, what, a couple hours, what do you do with the rest of your day? Oh, says the fisherman, I wake up late, go fishing. Then I go home, play with my children, take a siesta with my wife. Then the evening we'll stroll into town. I'll play the guitar and drink wine with my friends. The businessman says, oh man, you are, you're missing it. You have an incredible opportunity here. Look, if you work just a a little bit more each day, work a full day's work, you have the ability to to make more money. You can buy extra boats. You can have a little fleet of boats here in a a short period of time. And and then you'll have the ability to to, uh, eventually retire and the fisherman says, well, what would I do with my time then? Why? You could sleep late. You could play with your children. Take a siesta with your wife. Stroll into town. Play with the guitar and drink wine with your friends. Right? Our mentality is so materialistic we don't even recognize sometimes that we're enslaved. Let me, let me give you this, the second question here. What does my liberation in Christ from stuff mean? If I'm in Christ and, and I, I have this relationship with him and I've, I've been set free, as, as Luke tells us, that he's the one who brings freedom, what does, what does freedom look like when it comes to the things that I have? And here are some things that I think are helpful for us to think about. Number one is this. In Christ, what it means is that I am not enslaved by my possessions, so what is my liberation in Christ from stuff means? It means that in Christ, I'm not enslaved by my possessions. So I don't, these things don't enslave me. So what are some examples of how things enslave us? How do these things enslave us? Well, when I love things, I'm enslaved to them. When I love the things that God has given me, I'm, I'm enslaved to them. Listen to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 5.10 He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. How does Paul describe here the desire to be rich, the the love of these these things? It's it's a snare. It's, It's a trap. Remember Jesus, whenever we encounter, we're talking about the gospel of Luke, whenever Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus tells Jesus that, he says, after he's encountered the Lord, he says, look, I'm going to give half of my, my goods to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, whoa, Zacchaeus, let's be careful here. I mean, that's a lot. Let's think through this financially. Let's have a plan. And then, and then if you have the ability to give, then we'll do it. No, Jesus says what? He says, salvation has come to this house. What does Jesus mean? He means that 
that Zacchaeus rightly understands who he is and he has been delivered from the bondage of love of things. Tantalus was a, a figure in Greek mythology. and Remember, he had been cursed by the gods and Tantalus' curse was to stand in a pool of water with a, a fruit tree hanging over him for eternity. And he would, he would reach for the, for the fruit and as he reached for the fruit, the, the fruit tree branches would just kind of go a little bit above his reach and so he's always just, just grasping for the fruit. And then he would reach down for, for water and, and he wouldn't, he, every time he reached down for water, the the water would just recede a little bit away from him so he couldn't quite grasp it. He was never able to quench his thirst. He was never able to satisfy his hunger. And so it is, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, for the person who loves stuff, there's never enough. You're never quite satisfied. I'm a slave to my possessions when I love them. Worrying about things enslaves us, right? I'm enslaved by my possessions when I when I, lo- when I worry about them. Matthew 6 says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? It describes people who worry as those of, of little faith. Uh, many of you, or some of you at least probably remember uh, Dr. Dan Green who used to minister in, in this area. And I remember one time he, was, he teaches at Moody now and he, he told our class as we were going through the Gospel of Luke, he said, you know, before I had any money, I didn't worry about it. And then he and his wife received an inheritance, and now they had to figure out, okay, where do we put it? How do we secure it? How do we protect it? What happens if the market crashes? What happens if, if, if this happens? And there, he's, there's worry. What does worry do? Worry enslaves us. Preoccupation with get-rich-quick schemes enslaves us. I've had friends who were just so obsessed with how can, I, how can I make this money quickly that it just ensnared them in many things. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. Proverbs 20.21, 20, An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. If we go into debt because of our possessions, we're enslaved to them. If we are exhausted in trying to get more things, we're enslaved to them. Proverbs 23, verse 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. And isn't that, isn't that a powerful proverb? Isn't that well-worded? Let me say it again. This is Proverbs 23, 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. And how many of us would say, boy, the reason I get up in the morning, the reason I work long hours is, is to acquire the stuff. That's the ultimate purpose. Be discerning enough to desist. Be discerning enough to know, know when to, to stop. Verse 5 of that same proverb, when your eyes light on it, that's wealth, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. So first of all, in Christ, I'm not enslaved to my possessions. The second thing I, I, want, I think is important for us to think about is we think about applying Leviticus 25. In Christ, I am completely provided with all I need. In Christ, I am completely provided with all I need. The interesting thing is we think about the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus says, 
man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. God gave us the Sabbath, his rest that we find in Jesus Christ. And there is only, this is the interesting thing, there is only one type of person who can enjoy the Sabbath, right? The only person who can enjoy the Sabbath is the person who believes that God really will provide for them. The person who doesn't quite believe that God will really provide all that they need doesn't have the ability to really rest on the Sabbath or on on whatever that period it is that God provides for you to rest. The person who doesn't believe that God will provide is always worried, is always anxious, but I don't know if I'm going to have all that I need. You know, I I think it's a very important thing, a very important exercise for a family or for an individual to sit down and say, okay, what is it that I I truly need? 1 Timothy 6.8, we we looked at verses 9 and 10 about the the words of ensnarement to those who love wealth. But the verse right before that in verse 8 says, 1 Timothy 6, but he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Not if you have food, clothing, and the latest video game system, then you can be content. If I have food, clothing, and a substantial 401k, then I can be content. If I have food, clothing, and that uh, just a slightly better car, then I will be content. No, look. Hey, look, today, food, clothing, right now, at this moment, I don't need anything else. I'm finding my contentment in God. The, the person who isn't liberated in, in Christ can't say that. They can't say, you know what, I have Christ, I'm good. They fear. The entire economic system of the Israelites here is designed to reinforce this idea, this isn't your stuff, it's God's stuff, he's got it, he'll take care of you. Here's the third thing. In Christ, we see I'm a steward, not an owner. In Christ, I'm a steward, not an owner. Brothers and sisters, that should be an incredibly liberating thing. As my dad says, uh, the best way to own a boat is to rent it, you know. He loves sometimes when we get together renting a boat, but he says, I wouldn't want to own it. The, the, the stress and all the pressures and fixing. Look, all this stuff that I have, I have a, I have a list of things that, that need to be done on the house, a list of things that, you know, this, you know what, it's God's. <laughs> I need to do those things because I want to be a good steward, but, but ultimately, you know what, when the car breaks down or whenever something doesn't quite work right and, and I just find out about it, it's God's. I'm a steward. I'm going to take good care of it, but I, I don't own it. I don't have to stress out about it. Randy Alcorn has a great book called uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And, and if, you, if you've liked Dave Ramsey's stuff and you found that helpful, can I recommend Randy Alcorn? Dave Ramsey gives some good practical applications of some principles sometimes, but Alcorn kind of gives the theology behind why we would want to get out of debt or why we'd want to be good stewards of our money. And in his book, uh, it's either Treasure Principles or Money Possessions in Eternity, he kind of starts listing about some things about, about how to view our, our things. He says, so these are just different principles. God owns everything. I'm his money manager. My heart always go, 
my heart always goes where I put God's money. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. I think those are all very helpful things for us to think through as we think about, hey, you know what? I'm a steward of God's stuff, not an owner. And when I, when I pray, I, I don't pray, God, bless this as I, I give stuff back to you or help me to figure out how much to give back to you. I say, God, here is all your stuff. Help me to know what to do with it as your steward. And then finally, another principle here, in Christ, I am compelled to love my neighbor in, in tangible ways. In Christ, I'm called by God, I'm compelled to love my neighbor in tangible ways. I can't just abstractly say, hey, you know what? I need to kind of think nice thoughts about my neighbor. And if, if someone knocks on my door and they say, Daniel, I'm starving, I will come in and make them a sandwich. I'll let them come in and make them a sandwich. So that, that my love for my neighbor needs to be manifested in more compelling, tangible ways. God tells his covenant people, look, you have a, a social obligation to care for one another. I think here's some things I, I, I try to think through practically what that looks like. I think it means that I have to be troubled by injustice. Not just theoretically, I don't like injustice, but I'm troubled as I encounter injustice in a culture and in a society. I think it means that I recognize as a believer, look, I'm not, I'm not a socialist, I'm not a capitalist, I'm not a communist, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. And, and yes, I can have some of those opinions about tax policy and how an economy works. I can have those things, but ultimately I say, you know what, I I, I'm a believer, and I believe that I'm, I'm free from these economic systems in the sense of, of being tied to them, and I want to love Jesus with my stuff. And as a Christian, it means I look around and say, you know what, I need, and this is hard for, for those of us who love the principles and maybe even some of us who are gifted at, at acquiring things, I need to be troubled, I need to be troubled by a society that is committed to the accumulation of stuff, of wealth. That needs to bother me. I need to recognize that there's an, a danger inherent in, a, in a, a culture that's committed to the accumulation of material things. Isaiah 5.8 says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. I need to recognize that that. Inequality is not the sign of a healthy society. Now, some inequality is normal. It's, it's good, perhaps, because we want, you know, you want the economy to grow and people have more things. And any time that happens, that uh, th- things to provide for themselves, some people are going to have a lot, some are going to have little. We shouldn't envy one another. But I need to recognize, look, whenever there's, a, whenever there's a situation, whenever some people have an unlimited access to education or unlimited access to, to caring for their health or to food or to clothing, and then some people have limited to no access, that needs to bother me. I need to recognize that's, that's not how things should be. It's not how things are going to be in God's kingdom. And I need to recognize my personal responsibility to those who have been hurt by the economic system in which I participate in. And, and here's what we do. Here's what I do, okay? I'm a person who by any worldwide standard is incredibly well off. And so it's easy for me to to personalize the benefits 
and then generalize the consequences. So in other words, I can say, you know what? I, I have access to healthcare. I have access to this. I have access to that that other people don't. And so I, I'm going to personally appreciate that. But then I'm going to kind of generalize, well, that's society's problem that these people don't have these things or it's that person's problem or that's just kind of the way the thing works. In other words, I, I personalize the benefits and then I kind of ignore or generalize the negative things. That's, that's not what happens here in Leviticus 25. I personally recognize my, my culpability to, to care for others. I also see here in Leviticus 25, loving my neighbor, it, it means that I, I'm, I'm generous with the things that God has given me. I, I recognize that I have not just, a, not just this theoretical obligation, but a practical application to care for the impoverished spiritually and physically. It means that I, I refuse to harm others in my financial dealings with them. Remember there's that proverb where, where the the it talks about the person who's interacting with a merchant. They say, bad, bad. They say, well, this is a bad deal. Okay, I'll, and then they walk away and they, they boast. Ha ha, I got a good deal off that guy. As I buy a car, as I go to the grocery store, as I go to a garage sale, my objective is not to benefit myself and harm others, but that, but that any sort of transactions with another person would be mutually beneficial because, you know what, it's just stuff. I'm free from it. Far better for me to use the stuff that I'm free from to, to help another person whom God loves than to accumulate more of the stuff for myself. Far better. But brothers and sisters, we can't have that attitude apart from Christ. The socialist the extreme socialism of communism, the oppressiveness of communism, the sometimes unchecked greed of, of capitalism, the, demo, the progressive democratic socialism, all of those systems people enslave themselves to. In Christ, I'm, I'm free. I'm playing a, a different game. I've come to realize that I am am a sinner and then I have no hope of eternal life apart from Jesus Christ and then I come to Jesus Christ and I find the treasure and I place my faith in him asking for his forgiveness trusting in him alone for salvation and and then I I've it's over the game's I've won I found my joy and my delight in him and now I have the opportunity to worship him forever then what can I do in that freedom of being able to worship Christ forever I can proclaim the freedom that's found in that God as I use that stuff, those worthless trinkets, to bring about eternal treasure, both in my life and the lives of others. What a radical truth. and What a beautiful thing for us to think about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in his name. Father, change us, continue to mold us, to be in line with your character when it comes to using the things you've entrusted to us. Help us to use these things as uh, people who have been changed by the gospel. Help us to live as faithful participa participants in your kingdom. In your son's name we pray, amen.